Thank you, BJ. And hello, church. I tell you what, I was sitting there longing for the blended voices that we have because you sing so well. And I was remembering all the times when we get to that part in that song, Now Why This Fear, when we're singing together the different parts on how sweet the sound of saving grace, Christ died for me. I miss that so much. I, I look forward to the time when we are able to sing that together again. And I hope that you're taking this different kind of time to create different kinds of memories, good memories, uh, with your family. Four weeks ago, I made this statement about the COVID-19 virus and our physical distancing from one another. I made the statement that everything has changed, but nothing that has changed is eternal, and nothing that is eternal has changed. That's still true. It remains true because uh, God is unchangeable. And uh, as we look at what's been going on around us, we, we look at the, at the COVID-19 uh, virus, maybe it's waning, uh, possibly. Um, but we also look at the economy that may ensue after that. We don't know what that's going to look like. And then we look at the things that have happened here in Chattanooga this past week. A week ago tonight, uh, with the tornado that came through that so many people have been devastated from, and, and our, our hearts especially uh, are, are touched for Phil and Donna, and uh, we enter into that. I, I love the fact that uh, immediately after we heard about that, I kept getting calls, what can we do to help, how can we help, how can we show up, and, and many have done just that. But uh, as, as we think through those things. And as we look at what's going on in the world around us, Christianity has the unique response of all the religions in the world to the truth of present suffering in this world. And that is that God entered into it. Of all the worldviews that exist, Jesus, God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And he endured suffering. And he went to the cross where the greatest of all possible evils conceivable in the universe was placed upon him. And there's, there's no other answer to the problem of suffering than that. And when I look at what's going on in India, it's just so painful to see with the whole country locked down and people who are poor, unable to get food, who may die of starvation, not of the virus. And the fact that the government doesn't seem to care because of their belief in karma, both Buddhism and, and, and Hinduism there, uh, that, you know, that's, that's their due. Um, they don't say that publicly, but that's the worldview that they inhabit. So I'm so grateful for Jesus and for his identity with us. Do you remember when the apostle, I'm sorry, when Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church and Jesus appeared to him on the Damascus road, he didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because he's the head of the body and he identifies with our suffering. So whatever it is that you were going through, every bit of it, Jesus has felt this. Isaiah 53, he bore not only our sins, but our griefs and our sorrows. So that's the context in which we live and with which we 
interpret and live with the suffering that is a part of uh, this world. The passage that we've been studying as we go through the book of 1 Peter, in our passage, you'll notice that if you, if you just scan down verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, you'll notice that several verses are marked off as quotations in the Old Testament. And those quotations are very rich. But I'm going to take us back to chapter 1 for just a moment because we're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, and then continue on down through chapter 2, verse 10, which will conclude this section of the book of 1 Peter. Now, there's a quotation in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Now, let me give you a little bit of the background. Isaiah, before he gets to chapter 40, what we call chapter 40, he has written 39 chapters of expressions of grief and suffering and groaning and pain and anguish of God's people. And then after 39 chapters of that suffering, Isaiah 40, that Peter quotes, begins this way. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended. Her iniquity has been removed. She has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And the meaning there is double forgiveness, superabounding grace. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be filled in, be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then verse 6 says, a voice says, call out. And then he answered, what shall I call out? And here's what he called out. All flesh is grass and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of God blows upon it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And texts bring their context with them. So Isaiah is contrasting what is perishable with what is imperishable. Peter is talking about what is perishable and what is imperishable. And he promises that God is in control. And Isaiah is promising that God is sending redemption. His word is true. And Isaiah 40 through 66 lay out the comfort of God's redemption to the coming Messiah, his anointed. Isaiah was written to people facing Babylonian oppression. First Peter is written to believers facing Roman oppression. And he quotes this part of Isaiah 40. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. That is, since you have now been redeemed. God's Spirit has primed that love in you, put it into practice. He says, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Wow, there it is. In this section of 1 Peter 1, God's word is described by these phrases. The truth, the seed by which you were born again, the living 
an enduring word, the word of the Lord, the word that endures forever, the word that has been preached to you. All of that in that first section. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, long for the pure milk of the word. The believer's hope is secure and assured. Why? Because God's word is true. And your future hope is guaranteed because God says, what I am speaking to you is truth. I am truth. Trust me. Believe me. I've been true. I've spoken truth all along. You can verify it. It's true in your souls. You have lived it. So trust me now until faith becomes sight. Well, here's a big picture of our passage. In chapter 1, verses 20 through 25, which Lewis studied two weeks ago, it describes the nature of the word. Now, today our focus is going to start with chapter 2, because chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, focus on the nurture that we find in the word, which results in the spiritual growth of believers, and that growth is both individual and corporate as we live through troubled times now. So let's dig into it. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, and he's not making new points here, he's drawing a conclusion and an application from what's gone before, that you've been saved by God's grace, so based upon that salvation, in, in verse 21 of chapter 1, based on that salvation, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, and I'm going to pause right there, if we are to fervently love one another from the heart, chapter 1, verse 22, if we're going to do that, then verse 1 lists relational sins that, number one, cannot coexist with love. And number two, will actually take away your desire for God's word. So put them aside. Toss them like filthy clothes from your old life. And he lists these five sins. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Malice refers to harboring ill will towards someone. You, you, you have it in for them. You have, a, you have a taste for their downfall. Deceit, the Greek word originally meant, uh, referred to bait that you would use in a snare to catch an animal, to trap someone. It came to mean to lie to someone, or not at least telling them all the truth that they think they're hearing. You have ulterior motives in your communication. Hypocrisy, literally, it's plural, hypocrisies. Uh, this is refers, the word referred originally to an actor who was wearing a mask. The Hippocrates was the actor. And here it's talking about wearing multiple masks to different people, projecting different images that are not true to you. Uh, Betsy shared with me that uh, Jen Wilkin, who has written some books that some of the ladies in our church have read uh, define sanctification as ever-shrinking hypocrisy. I really like that. Ever-shrinking hypocrisy. It's good. The fourth one, envy, is when you refuse to be content with your life and you want their life, whoever they are. You want what they have or what you think they have. Slander is the last one. And that is a double-edged sin. Here's what, what I mean. Here's how it works. You envy someone, and therefore you try to run them down in order, here's the other side of it, to make yourself look good. To elevate yourself by contrast. And it may not even be an overt lie. It may just insinuate something or tell just part of the truth. You remember the humorous old prayer by the overweight lady 
Lord, please give me her metabolism. And Lord, if it's all the same to you, would you please give her mine? Do you hear the challenge as you listen to these of Ephesians 4, 29 and following ringing in your ears? Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such words that are good for edification. That means building up according to the need of the moment. That they, your words, will give grace to those who hear. This is about building up the body of Christ. This is how we fervently love one another from the heart. Your words will give grace to those who hear. Then later he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, which echoes the same sense we find in this verse. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God. So, get rid of these things. Malice was where you'd wound others. Deceit, you'd lie to others. Hypocrisy, you lie about yourself to others. Uh, envy, you're jealous of others. Slander, you lie about others. None of those promote the one another's of what the New Testament calls us to do as we fervently love one another from the heart with God's love. All five of those rip a church apart. They shred love. So is God's love for us mixed in any way with malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander? And church, if you're home watching this on YouTube, I'm just going to say this. May it never be. What a ghastly thought. Absolutely not. The question is absurd. Here's the contrast. Verse 2. Like newborn babes long or, or yearn for the pure milk of the word or pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now you'll notice as you study through this passage that the imagery has changed from seed to milk. We're spiritually begotten by the seed of God's word. That's in chapter 1. That word will not return void. But now we are to grow by the pure milk of God's word. Now before we examine uh, verse 2 in, in more detail, I need to address a translation issue. Um, in verse 2, some versions say the pure spiritual milk instead of the pure milk of the word. Uh, this is uh, milk, spirit, 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 getting my words wixed. You know what I mean. Uh, it's actually kind of hard to communicate this because not just in English, but in Greek, there's a play on words here. Uh, but but the root idea of the word is logos, which is word, the word of God, and that's what refers to the word of God in chapter 1. That's what Peter uses. But in chapter 2, he expands the word to logikos, which includes the idea of reasonable or rational, uh, again, related to our word logic. The only other New Testament occurrence, refer, only other uh, use of this word is in Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is why the King James Version translates it, your reasonable service. Modern versions render it your spiritual service of worship. Now this was clear to Peter's readers, it's just less clear to us, but if I can reduce it down, one scholar put, put it really well. The means by which God sanctifies believers is through the mind which is informed and sustained by God's word. John 17, 17. 
Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. Spiritual growth is not mystical. God's spirit engages our minds with God's truth to change our lives and our affections to conform us to Jesus Christ. And God makes sense. And you can see that as you immerse yourself in the word. So let's get to the point of our text. When we're born again, just as we are dependent upon God for our spiritual birth, we are dependent upon God for our spiritual growth. We can't save ourselves, and we can't grow ourselves either. Newborns don't need to be taught to desire milk, right? As we grow, and get this, our instinctive appetite should become, over time as we mature, enhanced into our developed appetite. Our instinctive appetite should become enhanced into our developed appetite because we've tasted of the kindness of God. Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is exactly where Peter goes in verse 3. So, like newborn babes, verse 2, long for the pure milk of the word or the pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And he refers again to Psalm 34, verse 8. This, this psalm is very important to Peter. He quotes it three times, I think, in the book. He quotes it again in, verse, in chapter 3 extensively. Psalm 34, as I said, texts bring context with them. Psalm 34, uh, it, it was written by David when he was fleeing from Saul, took refuge from, with Abimelech, and then had to pretend that he was crazy in order not to fight against the Israelites with the Philistines, of whom Abimelech was the king. So then he had to flee from Abimelech. So he's fleeing from Saul, he's fleeing from Abimelech. He's got no place to go. There's nothing for him anywhere except Psalm 34, except God. And God is enough. The theme of Psalm 34 is really the theme of First Peter. Where, when you're in distress, turn to the Lord. He'll deliver you. God is enough. And he will nourish you. So in this verse, these two verses, verses 2 and 3, babies know if they are not getting nourishment. They are aware and they will make you aware. And if you try to switch mother's milk off for 1% skim, it will be noticed. And to taste God's kindness, you have to get close. You can't taste for someone else or have someone else describe how they taste the mercy of the Lord and have that, their description, nourish you. No one can nurture your own spiritual growth for you. It's personal. You have to receive it yourself. There's no such thing as spiritual distancing from God. So now we come to verses 4 through 10. And I, I want to make a comment about these verses because, again, if you will look down, some of your Bibles may mark off some of the words in these verses with uh, capitals or italicized uh, uh, words or quotations or side references. Um, the point is, is that, that there are just all kinds of quotations in here and allusions here to various places in the Old Testament. And, and I want to make a comment about this before we dig into this because this section puts on display just as his preaching in Acts 2 through 4 
puts on display how deeply Peter himself has become a man of the word. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, uh, trained by Gamaliel, the Harvard PhD of Pharisaism. You expect Paul to be steeped in scriptures and a scholar and, and in fact, one of the hostile kings called uh, uh, Paul a man of great learning. But that's Paul. You expect it of Paul. Peter, not so much. For Peter, it was an open mouth, insert foot. That's the way that we tend to think of Peter. But after the resurrection, Jesus opened the scriptures to him and Peter became a man of the word steeped in the Psalms and in the prophets. And we see this in 1 Peter. We see this in Peter's sermons in Acts 2 through 4, packed with Old Testament references. 1 Peter contains quotations from Exodus, Leviticus, two from Proverbs, two from Psalms, six from Isaiah. This fisherman became a fisher of men and saturated himself in the scriptures. So we, we may not all be scholars like Paul. We can all become students like Peter. Now remember the context, where we are, just as we dive back into this. In chapter 1, verses 23 through 25, Peter discussed our new birth through the seed of the word, which is imperishable. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Peter focused on our growth through the milk of the word, which is eternal. And now in verses 4 through 10, he, changed the, he changes the picture. The first picture was seed. The second picture was milk. The third picture is going to be of a building and building stones. So in verses two through, 4 through 10, uh, he's going to describe uh, uh, what that building looks like and how we are a part of that building. And then after that, a new section, chapter 2, verse 11 begins a new section of the book that describes how we're to live before an unbelieving world in which we may suffer. But today, let's finish up with verses 4 through 10. And coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. And then he continues on from there with this image of a stone. In verse 4, Jesus is a living stone and a rejected stone. In verse 5, we are living stones. In verse 6, a choice stone, a cornerstone. In verse 7, a rejected stone, a cornerstone. In verse 8, a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. So, we've got the picture of seed. We've got the picture of milk. Why the picture of stone? Why this picture that, that Peter, where Peter harvests these pictures through the, from the Old Testament? First, let me tell you what it's not. You'll remember that Jesus gave Simon the name Petros, Peter, which means rock. So it's natural to wonder, was this in Peter's mind? I think it was, but not the way that you might think. I think it was in his mind for the opposite reason. Peter is careful not to make that connection. He doesn't refer to it at all. Peter, in fact, even uses texts that have different Greek words for rock than Jesus used. So Peter is not pointing to himself. Peter is pointing to Jesus. The rock or stone imagery is a frequent symbol in the Old Testament for how God was at work with his people. In Genesis 49, from Jacob comes a future shepherd, the stone of Israel. You remember with Moses in the wilderness, he was to strike the rock 
uh, from which came a life-saving water. Later he was to speak to the rock for the same nourishment. Of course, you know the story about that. Paul wrote about that, but he said they were all drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Five times in Deuteronomy, the rock is our faithful God. God is called our rock throughout the book of Psalms, maybe two dozen times. God is our rock as a frequent symbol in the prophets, especially Isaiah, maybe a dozen times in Isaiah. Even the most skeptical of Old Testament scholars acknowledge that the rock or the stone is probably a title for the coming Messiah. In the New Testament, Jesus identifies himself in the Gospels as the rejected rock. And both Paul and Peter use that same imagery, sometimes the same passages. So in verses 4 through 10, Peter is looking at Scripture from which we receive nourishment. He's not looking at himself. He's saying Jesus fulfills that scripture and as we see him more clearly we are encouraged as we live in this time before faith becomes sight so in verse 4 as we mature in christ we are notice what verse 4 says as we continue coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and present precious in the sight of god i want to first of all look at how jesus is described and then I want to look at how we are described. So first, how is Jesus described in this verse? He is described as a living stone. The idols that Israel's pagan neighbors worshipped are described in detail in Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah as lifeless, dead stones. Jesus was dead, but was resurrected and is now alive. He's the living stone. Secondly, rejected by men. I want you to think about this a little bit more deeply. A builder had preconceived notions of what that building should look like and would reject a stone that didn't fit with that preconceived notion. Israel had a preconceived notion of who the Messiah was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to overthrow Rome and reestablish their own power. Jesus did not fit that preconceived notion. He didn't fit the plan. Therefore, he was rejected by men. And the third description of Jesus, choice and precious in the sight of God. Despite being rejected by men, he is the living stone and precious to God. And, and by the way, in verse 5, we too are living stones. Does that mean that we too are precious to God? Yeah, verse 18 of chapter 1 has already told us that. Verses 18 and 19. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Not that we are precious, but that we partake of that which is precious. So we, are, are, we, we benefit from what Jesus has done. So first of all, that's how Jesus is described. How are we described in this verse? It's just a participle. Coming to him. The verb coming pictures a continuous coming to Christ over and over repeatedly. In other words, this is not about our salvation. This is about our daily communion with him. When we come to him daily, consistently, we're coming to the one who loves us, who became incarnate for us, who suffered for us, who died for us, who was raised again for the forgiveness of our sins. That's who we are coming to daily, longing for the nourishing milk of the word. 
What happens as a result of that process? Verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Spiritual sacrifices. These are the sacrifices that are generated by the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are all presently under construction. As living stones in God's house, God's building, God's church. And while Jesus was the rejected stone in verse 4 and later in verse 7, we are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're a spiritual house for a holy priesthood as we come to him daily, nourished by the milk of the word, being built up into the building, our lives. Here's the deal. Our lives comprise, as we walk with him daily, take up our cross daily, commune with him daily, our lives comprise of a collection of small acts of obedience that please him. And those small acts of obedience collected together, he calls acceptable spiritual sacrifices. Again, do you hear echoes there of Romans 12, 1 and 2? And if you've ever wondered where the idea of the priesthood of the believer comes from, here it is. Now, it's developed fully as a doctrine in the book of Hebrews. In the Old Testament, the process of priesthood, in the Old Testament, only the priests could offer sacrifices. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies, go past that massive heavy veil once a year on the day of atonement and pour blood on the altar but jesus paid it all all jesus sacrifice was sufficient and our atonement he is our atonement the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world and when he cried out it is finished and died the heavy massive temple veil that separated God from his people was torn ripped not from the bottom up but from the top down because God initiated that and now we all have access to him as our heavenly father through the shed blood of Jesus we are all now a holy priesthood and as Hebrews says we can go boldly into that throne of grace and call upon him as our father hebrews 13 puts it this way through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to god that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and do not neglect doing good or sharing now listen to this for with such sacrifices god is well pleased now that's just enough i mean we could stop right here but verse 6 gives the scriptural foundation for the claims in verses 4 and 5. Verse 6 says, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not, and the language is very emphatic there, will certainly not ever, that's the meaning of it, be disappointed. Peter quotes from Isaiah 28 here, where Isaiah was encouraging the Israelites as God's people, don't place your trust in that which is perishable. Don't place your trust in foreign alliances or in military strength 
or in finances or anything else. Instead, place your trust in the Lord. Everything else is going to fail you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will never fail you. He will never disappoint you. So I, Isaiah says, if you believe in him, that's Isaiah's wording. And, and the, the idea here is that the only condition is faith. If you believe in him, uh, he is the cornerstone. If you believe in him, you will never be disappointed or humiliated or put to shame because Peter says he's the cornerstone from which the building of the church gets its bearings. Verse, verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. But here's the contrast. For those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. What can withstand God's building of his church as we follow Jesus together? Nothing. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower. This precious value. You know, I, I looked at the word precious. It's, it's found in various forms five times in this section of 1 first, of, uh, first Peter. Five times, the word precious. One scholar put it very well. Neither this text nor any other text in the Bible says that God saved us because we were precious. He saved us in spite of the fact that we were sinful, defiled, and useless. He saved us because he regarded his son as precious. In verses 7 and 8, Peter draws an inference from what he's just said for those who believe and for those who don't believe. For believers, literally, he says, to you who believe is the value. To you who believe is the value. You may endure suffering here, but you're not home yet. God is building a building. He's building his church. He's building his bride. He's building you, individual. And he's building you, plural. Skeptics may doubt this, but as C.S. Lewis put it, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. But the verse has more. That's for believers. To you who believe is the value. For unbelievers, verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they're disobedient to the word. I'm going to pause right there. That means they have no, no taste for it. Uh, in fact, they not only have no taste for it, they actively reject it. They do not accidentally stumble over Christ. And then he continues, to this doom they were appointed. So just as our belief is included in God's plan, our unbelief is also included in God's plan. And however you understand these things and how they are fit together, Scripture teaches two truths. First of all, God is sovereign over all events. And secondly, human beings are responsible for their sinful choices, including the choice to reject Christ. And those, those are the two guardrails that Scripture gives us. And it's unwise to go outside those guardrails for some resolution that is less than biblical. Uh, that statement is a statement for a deeper study at another time. What he's describing is people who intentionally reject Christ and who later discover the outcome of their rebellious choice. Now, 
I just want to say a word. If, if this describes you right now, here in your life, at this point in your life, if you have gambled your eternal destiny and, on the bet that Jesus is not who he claimed to be, you've lost. The converse of verse 6 is, he who does not believe in him will be disappointed, will be humiliated, will be put to shame. There will be judgment. Jesus is either your cornerstone or your stumbling stone, a rock of offense, something that you trip over. But no one has piled up more sins than Jesus has died for. So God's mercy can still cover you. And right now, it's not too late to place your faith in Jesus Christ if you have never done that if god's spirit is pricking you about this because verses seven and eight contain some very bad news for those who do not know him but verses nine and ten contain the good news look at the contrast but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for god's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies or, or the attributes or the character of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't that a wonderful definition of worship? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10 continues, For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The imagery here is drawn, Peter's been reading the Bible, it's drawn from Hosea. If you read the story of Hosea and his wife, Gomer, Israel is compared to a wife who deserted her husband and ended up as a prostitute, selling herself. But Hosea redeems her. He, she actually became enslaved, trafficked, and he buys her out of that market. And the picture uh, is one of a loving husband buying back a faithless wife. And the analogy in the book of Hosea is that God redeemed faithless Israel. Israel did not deserve to be called God's people. She played the harlot with false gods. She was his faithless wife. But they did receive God's mercy by grace. And just as disobedient Israelites became God's people, so disobedient Gentiles can become God's people by God's mercy. And you see the way that this ends? You had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. This is crucial. Look back to chapter 1, verse 3. This is where this section begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The section begins with God's mercy, and now it ends with God's mercy. This is crucial. Those are the two bookends of this section. And, well, that's our passage. We said that this entire section, chapter 1, verse 3, through chapter 2, verse 10, and, and Lewis has taken us through this, contains five imperatives. Let me remind you of what those five imperatives are. Verse 13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 15, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Verse 17, conduct yourselves in fear during your stay on earth. Verse 22, which we've already looked at again, fervently love one another from the heart. 
And the last imperative is in verse 2. Long for the pure milk of the word. That's an imperative. That's the command. There's not a single one of these five imperatives that you can do on your own. All five are anchored in and rely upon God's mercy and God's spirit at work in your heart. All five assume that God will enable you to do these things. But there's a divine synergy in the attitudes and actions of sanctification. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Who works? You do. But then he continues, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. This is an amazing passage. And I have two takeaways for us. Uh, first of all, I want to focus on that last imperative. Long for the pure milk of the word. There is a Christian satire website called Babylon B that some of us look at and laugh at quite a bit, mainly even just their headlines. And they recently posted a tongue-in-cheek article about a man who announced a new diet. His new diet was that he was going to uh, eat food directly corresponding to his pattern of Bible reading. So he, his plan was he reads the Bible about once a week or so, so he's going to eat one meal a week or so. Uh, he, he, his claim is that his spirit can thrive on once-a-week plan, then surely his body can thrive on a once-a-week plan. The article concluded, when asked how he expects to sustain himself between meals, he stated he will listen to podcasts about food, play music by artists who believe in the power of food, and look at pictures of food on Instagram. It's funny, but it's a little too real. Long for the pure milk of the word. And if you do not, if you do not have that craving for God's word, there may be reasons. Maybe you haven't tasted the Lord's kindness and salvation. Maybe you need to be saved. And if you haven't responded to the gospel, I'd love to talk with you. Contact me, contact Lewis, uh, B.J. Damon, any of the staff, and elders, any people in the church. We'd love to talk with you about the gospel and what it means to place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Maybe the reason why you don't have a craving is that you've allowed sin to displace that craving because that can happen. The old saying is true. The Bible keep you from sin will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from the Bible. Maybe you've ruined your appetite by junk Christian food. There's a lot of junk Christian fluff out there. Uh, and you can find some of it in Christian bookstores even that water down the pure milk of the word. Don't settle for less. Uh, feed on the Word, not books about the Word. They're good, but they're not the nourishment that you need. You don't fall in love by proxy. So that's the first takeaway. Long for the pure milk of the Word. Second one is this. Remember who God is. Throughout this passage, the sovereign Lord who loves you. Peter is saying that when you examine Scripture, all the things that happened in Isaiah's day and all the things that happened to the first century believers... Peter's day. All of that was a part of God's sovereign plan, so you could trust him. And you know, it's easy to read that and say, yeah, Peter, you tell them that. This is great. You explain to them how they need to know that. But when it's not them, but it's us, oh, it feels a little bit different, doesn't it? What does Peter do? He reminds them and he reminds us of who we are. 
Your identity is not who the world says you are, it's who God says you are. The world got it wrong about Jesus. The rejected stone was the precious stone in God's eyes. And you are God's people. You have received God's mercy, and he's working through you. Therefore, verse 9, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This first century love letter was given by the Spirit to believers in all centuries, not just the first century. It was given to us because these joys are ours. Even the suffering that we endure, all these things are a part of God's sovereign plan. And therefore, we endure with patience. And, and I'm not, please, I've felt so inadequate. I have felt so inadequate talking about this passage to you, studying through it and saying, I've got to say this to you. But I've got to say this to you because I'm saying it to myself. It's just, it's hard to say, um, you know, he's got this. He does. Until faith becomes sight, we go through the challenges of this life with patience and realize he is not surprised by anything that has happened to you. He is not in heaven wringing his hands and saying, oh no, oh no, didn't see that coming. So, how you recalibrate what's important in your life right now is to reflect how you proclaim the excellencies of his name to the people around us. I think that God wants us to reevaluate and recalibrate what's necessary, what's important, what's extravagant. I'm not claiming that God made this happen or even allowed this happen to happen because of this reason or that reason. I don't know what all of his reasons may be. I do know that he works things together for good, but I don't know what he is allowing for either collectively or individually. I don't pretend to know his reasons, but I am saying this, that at the end of it, wouldn't it be a shame if you didn't think differently about what's important and about your involvement with your family and about over-dependence on your 401k or your dependence upon entertainment or about how you, how this or what that, you just fill in the blank, has taken this maybe too large a place in your life. Wouldn't it be a waste if at the end of all this adjustment, nothing changed in your thinking, nothing changed in your living? I think it's worth asking you, after, after we're done with the last song, and you get out of YouTube, and then you turn your TV off, please, take a little bit of time to ask God to search your heart, consider your priorities, and ask him to realign your thinking so that what's important to him becomes what's important to you. Remember who God is. The sovereign God who loves you so much that he'd rather die than live without you. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for its truth. Thank you, Lord, for its nourishment. And I ask, Lord, that we would grow deeper in love with you through your truth. Pray that we would be your faithful sons and daughters as we live through this time loving you and loving those around us deeply from the heart. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.